everybody. You are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. There are all sorts of red flags of financial fraud that you might see. Some of the ones that I talk about because I see them most commonly are a spouse becoming more secretive about the money, changing their behavior regarding the money, maybe how they spend. They used to use a debit card or credit card all the time. Now they're starting to spend using cash instead. It probably means they are trying to conceal their spending. They don't want you to know what they're spending on. Maybe changing what information you have access to. Maybe they have locked you out of online banking, or maybe they were letting you see tax returns previously, but now they're not. If someone starts acting differently, you know something's not right in paradise, so you kind of need to, you know, get your radar up and do a little detective work to see, you know, what the heck's going on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast today. This is a topic today that's very near and dear to my heart um, because I talk about it a lot. So you will not be surprised about who my guest is today. Her name is Tracy Conan, and she is a no-nonsense forensic accountant who really delivers the real deal to her clients. And she's also making it accessible to women and men, but women in particular of um, all walks of life because you may or may not know that sometimes forensic accounting can be a little bit expensive, and so sometimes people forego it at their at their own cost, really. So when your money's on the line, there's not a lot of time to dance around the issue when you're in the middle of a you know in, a, in the middle of a divorce proceeding, which you're already overwhelmed with emotional turmoil often the sense of loss, and also you may be stunned that there are accounts that you don't know about or that there are, you know, there's a lot of tomfoolery going on that you didn't know financially was happening with the other party. So after years of watching people who just couldn't justify the cost of forensic accounting during their, you know, divorce proceedings and seeing people lose thousands of dollars because they couldn't do so, Tracy decided to take charge and create a solution to help women and men, but women in particular, because I think women are more prone to needing a forensic accountant. And for those listening who are men, don't get mad at me, but I just think it's a fact of life. That's why, you know, she then started and created the Divorce Money Guide. So this is a guide that can help you unearth some of these secret accounts and so on and so forth without you having to go get a forensic accountant and spend those thousands and thousands of dollars. Tracy works at a forensic accounting firm. So she is an actual practicing forensic accountant. She works at Sequence Inc. And she's been doing fraud investigations for over 25 years, even though she looks like she's 25 years old. So she must have started when she was three. Um, She's a certified public accountant. She has a certified financial forensics designation. She also is a master analyst in financial forensics. She also testifies as an expert witness, so something to remember. So let me introduce this highly acclaimed forensic accountant, Tracy. Conan, thank you for joining us today, Tracy. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for all the nice things you had to say about me. I'm I'm really passionate about what I do and about helping, as you said, women in particular in divorce. So I'm happy to be here so we can bust some of those myths, help people get better understanding over their finances, and find out if there's any hidden money. Right. And so let's just lay the table a little bit. 
Well, I mean, the first thing I always say to people, and after looking at your website, you say seem to say to people too, is before you decide to walk out the door and throw up your hands and complete, you know, I need to get out of this thing, don't do that. You need to do some pre-gaming before you decide to pull the plug. And that would involve getting familiar with all of your accounts and all of the accounts of your significant other. Because when you get down the line into a divorce, what I've seen is that, you know, people are not as forthcoming with documentation. So if you're already mad at each other and you are asking somebody to, you know, come forward with all their documentation, they probably aren't going to be as forthcoming, right? So is that something that you've seen happen? Like, why does anyone even need a forensic accountant? Like, what's, what are the, tra- you know, the chain of events that get you to that? Well, first off, you are absolutely correct. If people are contemplating divorce, I always say that the best way to protect yourself is to gather all the financial information you can that you have legal access to before you start going down that path of divorce. I see people have their names taken off accounts. I see them getting locked out of online banking. That happened to me, by the way. I got locked out. The minute I was told that my first husband, he wanted a divorce, I don't know, it may have been two hours later, I had no access to any of our bank accounts. He changed all the passwords. You know, it was there was some shady stuff that went down and it was petrifying. So carry on, but this is real. Sure. Through the legal process, you'll get access to that information and to those statements and everything at some point. But I'd rather you have that information in your hands now, have it secured. So I tell people what you need to do is log into those accounts and start downloading all the statements that you have access to, right? Because We might not use them all. You know, you might look at that account and say, oh gosh, when I look in here, I can go back five years. I don't need those old statements. I say, if you have the time, take it and download them. If we don't use the statements, fine. But if we ever do want them, we've got them. You also ask, so, you know, why is a forensic accountant needed in in a divorce? It's usually because someone is concerned about what's been going on. Either they already have some proof about some hidden money or some improper transactions, or they have really strong suspicions about it. So when people are coming to me saying, I might need a forensic accountant in my divorce, I start the conversation by talking about what have you seen? What gives rise to your concerns? Occasionally, I'll be told things like, well, he's just a cheat, and so I'm sure something's going on. And in those cases, I say, you know, it's probably not worth your while to go down this path unless you have something more concrete. Then we get, you know, on that range of people, we've got people who are saying, well, a year ago, this happened and it caused me to be really suspicious. And since then, I've seen these three other things. That's the kind of scenario where I'm saying, you're right, you probably need someone to start looking into this for you. Yeah. And I mean, just so listening to this, right, because here you are now in a divorce um, and you are trying to gather information and you have your suspicions as to what might be going on. But I just want to say, and I'm not, you know, trying to like wag my finger and be like a school teacher, but in order to get to the place where this doesn't happen is that we are not allowed to not take control during our lives. We need to be proactive. When we sign a tax return, we need to look at the tax return. We should keep a copy of it in our own files. We should look at the schedules. We should be checking our credit reports because if we're commingling credit, you know, is this person out charging on your credit card? You don't know anything about it on your joint one. Do you even know what your credit score is? I have so many women that I speak to who have no idea how much their husbands make. They don't know 
like anything about their accounts. They don't even know how many accounts they have. They sign tax returns without ever, ever reading them. So before we even get to Tracy, please don't do any of those things, okay? And then you might be in a little better position than you would normally be in. You know, all of this stuff is kind of, I talk a lot about relationships and money and how to be transparent and talking to your partner about money. Because if you can't talk about money with your partner, you probably have not the best of relationships. And as we know, a lot of marriages end because of money. And I think I've read 82% of arguments are usually about money, not how much money they have, but how much, how the money is spent. So this is something that is very integral to our happiness, right? And I think all of this is very kind of scary to me in the sense that the fraud, financial control, financial abuse, they're all kind of related, you know? They are. And it's, it's kind of, shocking how many women are actually controlled by money. I had someone call me the other day who is about to engage now and going forward in a divorce, 60 years old, four kids, hasn't worked forever. And none of the accounts are in her name. Everything is only in his name, even the ownership of the home. So she doesn't really know anything about anything. So she would be someone that I think probably could use your your guide. Well, sure. This is more common than I think a lot of people realize that one spouse is controlling the money and has, you know, control over the accounts and is responsible for paying the bills and is keeping track of it all while the other spouse is being really hands off. And what I see is that there is some shame surrounding that. Probably that woman who called you said, gosh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. Yeah. I haven't been watching anything. And I try to tell my clients, please don't be ashamed. There are millions of women who are in the same boat yeah. as you who have said, I trust my husband. Our needs are met and he's got it taken care of. And so they didn't watch. But going back to your comments about communication and being involved, it is so important because you could find yourself on the outside looking in, and where do you even begin to understand what we have? You, what you know is, I think we're good. We're This woman in her 60s, we're nearing retirement. I think we're good for retirement. But what if you're not? What if he didn't? Right. And you can't trust your partner. I always say your partner isn't your plan and you're not allowed to, you know, ignorance is not bliss. You need to be engaged. And I don't want to shame anyone because I believe women are still victims of the historical narrative about how we've been trained mentally to talk, you know, we should be nurturers and we should be kind and, and, you know, not talking about money and all that stuff because somehow that's looked upon as being anti-feminine. And I still think there's a lot of that around and that I also think that I, you know, hear, I still hear to this day, which is somewhat shocking to me that, you know, people say the minute you get married, you should commingle everything. I say that's absolutely not what you should do. You should be intentional about what you do commingle, but you also have to keep your eye on the ball of what all of the marital corpus in, in includes you know, his accounts and your accounts. So let me ask you a question. How is financial infidelity, you know, different from regular infidelity? I mean, I know when I was married to my first husband, because we were totally dysfunctional when it came to money, as far as how we communicated, we had completely different money values, money languages, money personalities. We were very different. And if we had discussed that in 1987, before we got married, we probably would have either not gotten married or sought some financial therapy or something. 
But back then, no one ever talked about that. And we didn't have a prenup. But, you know, I would sometimes go buy shoes or whatever and not hide them under the bed. So those would be my little white lies. Um, I wasn't ever hiding assets, but I wasn't completely transparent with him. So what does it look like, financial infidelity? And what does that encompass? Where does the white lies kind of transform into full-blown, I'm hiding everything from you. I like to say that financial infidelity is any lie about the money that matters. And what matters is going to be different in your marriage versus someone else's. There is a marriage where hiding the shoeboxes under the bed is going to be something that you know your husband would be upset about and would want to know about. In other marriages, it's just, eh, that, that's a little, it's just something that we don't want to talk about. So I, I shove the shoes under the bed. So there can be this continuum The financial infidelity that I worry about with my clients is the bigger stuff. It's not the little careless spending, the purchases that are, the small purchases that are concealed, but we're focused on the bigger purchases that are concealed, the spending on an affair partner, the spending on an expensive hobby that your spouse doesn't approve of or wouldn't approve of if they knew about, the gambling, the, the not saving or the violating of agreements that we've had about money. We've agreed every paycheck, this much is going into retirement, that much is going to be saved, another amount is going to be spent on bills, and you're somehow doing something that violates that agreement. Got it. And those are some very significant things that can have a really detrimental effect, especially, you know, for, I went through a gray divorce in my 50s, and when this happens, for the you know people who are a little bit older, this can affect how they're going to live in retirement. I mean, if you do not have access to this information, this affects what kind of money that you have that you could be living on throughout the rest of your life. You could live to be 100 and women are living five years longer than their male counterparts. So if you are not on top of this and you don't engage someone or some advice the way, you know, uh, like, Tracy is giving out, you could lose a lot of money in your settlement. And that might mean that your retirement is going to be a little bit dicey, especially if you haven't worked in a long time and you have to try to recreate yourself and recreate a career in your 50s, which as someone, you know, I was a corporate securities lawyer and investment banker for many years and I had lived in a foreign country. So I had to come back, as many of you know, and recreate my life. And, you know, I did it, but at 50 years old, I was 53. It wasn't exactly, you know, that was 12 years ago. That wasn't exactly the easiest thing in the world to do, but I did it. But a lot of women find it difficult to get to the standard they were living at when they're married. So this is integral to your happiness and to your living in your retirement and being able to pay for your medical costs and, you know, living with dignity. So this is no small thing, guys. This is, you know, as as some of the podcasts I've done, I would say this is one you got to really pay attention to and take notes and check out Tracy's website, which we'll give you at the end of the podcast. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules 
for managing your money and relationships and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today. So what are the warning signs? What should people be looking for that are like red flags that say, "Uh uh-oh, you know, danger, problem? The first thing I want to say is trust your gut. You know your spouse. And if something feels off, you probably have a really strong sense about that. But there are all sorts of red flags of financial fraud that you might see. Some of the ones that I talk about because I see them most commonly are a spouse becoming more secretive about the money, changing their behavior regarding the money, maybe how they spend. They used to use a debit card or credit card all the time. Now they're starting to spend using cash instead. It probably means they are trying to conceal their spending. They don't want you to know what they're spending on. Maybe changing what information you have access to. Maybe they have locked you out of online banking, or maybe they were letting you see tax returns previously, but now they're not. Doing things like spending large amounts of money or having transactions that they can't explain or that are confusing, things like that. So some pretty big, pretty common warning signs there. And uh, a person would find this out by either looking at their statements or just also, you know, just monitoring this person's behavior. Right. In daily life, a number of these things are things that you're going to see. I mean, of course, if you suddenly can't log into online banking, that's going to be obvious to you. But I tell people, you know, pay attention to the mail that's coming to the house. Is some mail that used to come there not coming anymore? Maybe you did. Maybe you were someone who still got paper bank statements and now they've suddenly stopped coming and nothing was said to you about it. It's one thing if your spouse says to you, hey, just so you know, um, I'm going to this all online and we're not going to get statements in the mail anymore. They're just going to be emailed to us. Great. I love it when those conversations happen. But if there has been this change and the conversation hasn't happened at all, I'm asking myself why Why didn't we talk about that that was going to happen? Right. So if there is kind of a change in behavior, and that goes for many things. I mean, that goes not only for financial infidelity, but regular infidelity. If someone starts acting differently, we all know we have our gut reactions. You're absolutely right. You know something's not right in in paradise, so you kind of need to, you know, get your radar up and do a little detective work to see, you know, what the heck's going on. So... Assuming, um, and I do want to ask you at one point, uh, something about, you know, when people have companies, how that plays into this. But I first want to ask you, uh, what are the, you know, the legal consequences of financial infidelity? Like how, how does that shake out in a divorce situation and, and what, and what can be the consequences of that? If your spouse is spending money on an affair partner or on excessive gambling or, you know, hiding money, wasting money, you have an opportunity to get some of that money back in the divorce, but you have to be able to prove how much money and where did it go. And that's where people who are coming to me saying, hey, I know my husband, you know, hid some money, or I know my husband had an affair partner and was spending all this money. Okay. We have to actually prove that because a judge is not going to give you anything back in the divorce if you can't prove it. Right. Right. And so you're going to your attorney saying he's hiding money. They're going to say, prove it. And that's what I show people how to go through their statements and find the proof that they need and put these transactions together so that they can go to their attorney with a list of transactions. Here are 
you know, 20 times when he transferred money out of our joint account into an account at another bank that I knew nothing about, I've added up these 20 transactions. There's $150,000 that he transferred to this other account. Now we have an opportunity to go, you know, get those, the statements from that account and try to get some of that money back. So let me ask you a question. How, I mean, and I know, I don't know if there's a statistic out there on this, but what percentage of women hire forensic accountants compared to men? My thinking is that more women probably are hiring forensic accountants because we, again, are a little bit anachronistic and still chronologically, I still think we still have some very old-fashioned notions and women are still a little behind the eight ball in representing themselves in their partnerships, especially in the financial element of it. So are more women usually wanting forensic accountants or is it just kind of split down the middle? I don't know if there's any good statistics out there. I can only tell you from my 25 years of being a forensic accountant, I would say probably 85% of my divorce clients have been women, maybe more than that. It is, is usually the women who are you know, thinking that something is going wrong with the money. When the men are hiring me in these cases, it's usually because they are defending themselves against allegations mm-hmm. of having hidden money. When they're defending themselves, what are you doing to help them defend themselves? I'm just curious. Are they saying there's just no proof of what I'm being accused of? Or how does a defense go like that? I'm curious. I would do the same work for them that I would do for their wife if she was the one hiring me. I'm going through all of the account statements, transaction by transaction, proving exactly how much money came in, how much money went out. On the side of how much came in, I'm not just looking at exactly what came into the bank accounts, but I'm also reconciling that with what we know about the scenario. We know how much you made, how much was taken out in taxes every year. So we know about how much should have been deposited to the bank accounts every year. Then on the expense side, I'm saying, okay, where did the money go to? Let's account for all of it. We can see the mortgage payments, the car payments, utilities, groceries, dining out. Oh, look, we have transactions We have money being transferred to an account over here. And so we're accounting for every dollar that went out. It's the same whether the woman hires me or the man hires me. I'm really just tracing money and trying to prove what came in, what went out. So let me ask you a question because I've been in situations with people and clients who we're, I'm in California, which is a community property state. And a lot of people have private businesses, family-owned businesses or closely held businesses, subchapter S, LLCs, but they're family businesses. And when it's time for the divorce, all of a sudden a business that has been profitable seems to be like, uh, you know, it's not making any money anymore. And where it, so even if a, a person isn't, you know, one of the, the spouse isn't a shareholder in a community property state, some of the ownership or benefit of that company will be attributed to the spouse. But it often comes to fore that the company will not produce documentation or isn't so forthcoming about sharing the, you know, the revenues and the profits of the company, which when everything was right, was doing really well. And all of a sudden when the divorce came along, oh my God, you know, the company's doing really bad. There's nothing really here for this person to share in. How do you navigate through that? Because this is something I've often thought about myself for the clients that I've talked to with this. How do you get to the bottom of all that? Well, first, we absolutely push the issue on getting documents. 
And for me, it starts with bank documents because the bank accounts, what happens in those accounts, we can find out, right? You get the bank statements. It is the truth about where the money came from and went to. So that's a great starting point. Again, it's going through those transactions line by line for me. We then push to get the accounting records. We want, if they are using QuickBooks or whatever financial software Mm -hmm. they're using, to keep the accounting records, we push to get those and we start matching that with the bank account records. And what we'll see in a situation like yours sometimes is there's all sorts of bank deposits that suddenly didn't make it into the accounting records once the divorce was filed. So we can prove that those accounting records were manipulated. However, some people are much more clever about it. They won't deposit the money in the business bank account. They'll open a separate account or they'll take some clients and shuttle them off to another company. What gets really interesting though, when people are manipulating business financial records for the purpose of divorce, what I usually see them doing is they will... Uh, bring the revenue numbers down and say, we're not making what we used to. The clients aren't paying what they used to, but they won't adjust the expenses because they want those expenses to be big and to be there and to go on the tax returns. We've got to deduct right, everything. Right, they have to pay any taxes, right. And it's on that expense side where we end up proving that the company isn't doing poorly. I'll give you an example. There is a company manufacturing, family-owned, decent size in terms of, I don't know, several million in sales, but not huge at all. And of course, their revenues were down and you looked at their financial statements, their accounting records, you saw that in fact, the revenues were down. We started digging in on the expense side and I happened to see that all of the stuff that they manufactured and sent out to clients was shipped out via UPS. We subpoenaed UPS records. And what we found was that the volume of shipping never went down even though their revenues on the books went that down. That is so interesting. Oh my God. Right? There's always a way to hack this. If you've been investigating fraud for 25 years, there's always a way to hack this. There was another one I was involved in where there was a laundromat. Oh, the laundromat is doing poorly. What did we do? We subpoenaed the water company records. Oh my gosh. I love right? that. Right. right. OMG, that is brilliant. See, I, no one would ever think that you were going to do that, right? right? So they thought, we've got this. And so those are, those are tricky ones, right? And people say, well, but in other businesses, there's not going to be something like that. There's always something. Yes. How about this one? We had a dentist. Oh, the dentist, the dental office is doing poorly. We're, we've just lost all sorts of patients. We found two things there. He was paying dental assistants just as much as he was always paying them. If you don't have patients, you don't need to pay dental assistants. That was one way to prove that there must still be income coming in. The second way was his lab expense. When you have a dental practice or any kind of medical practice, you have certain lab expenses where you're sending away for tests or material supplies, things like that. We look at those kinds of things and say, hey, they're using the lab just as much as they did before. That's just not reasonable given what they've said about their income. So I want to just point out here, you know, I know that when people, um, now you can use the divorce money guide, but if you have some of these nuanced situations and you need to get a forensic accountant and it, maybe it might cost $8,000, $10,000, you're going to kind of, and maybe it might cost a tiny bit more. I don't know, or more. I don't know what the average cost is. And obviously it depends on the time and how the complexity. But if you don't do it, 
then you lose maybe a big chunk of change that in perpetuity is going to really matter to you in your life. And so it's really easy to be penny wise and pound foolish because when you hear the first number, it's going to cost 10 grand. You're like, okay, I'm already paying legal fees. But if you have somebody who has a private company that you're married to and they're, you know, doing these shenanigans, they're doing it because they don't want to give you either a settlement up front or right. alimony or whatever, so that you are going to be able to have the kind of money that you are used to living on because they're still making the same amount of money. They're just trying to convince you that's not the case. But this happens time and time again. And I've seen it a lot. I've seen it with like people who have private, you know, law firms. It's a guy, you know, a couple of guys have a law firm or, you know, any sort of private family business. This is something that goes on quite a bit. And if you don't get to the bottom of it, you will walk away with a lot, lot less money and that will literally follow you throughout your life and not in a good way. So this is really important stuff. So I want to ask you, what can you do legally before you get to, to this? Like, what can you do to put safeguards in? Like, how can you protect yourself if someone's going to lie about their company, right? There's, I'm not sure there's really much you can do about it before, but maybe there is. I don't know. What safeguards should women, I'm going to say women because, you know, I like to talk to women about all this stuff, but what should we be doing to try to protect ourselves before we get to this sort of bad situation? You're right that it really is hard to protect yourself when it comes to that company. Um, You can't control what they're going to do with that company. What I can say is if you have financial information that you have access to and you collect that and keep it, that is one step. But because we can't control what they're doing with the company, I like to say the better way to think about protecting yourself is what can I control? I can have a bank account that is in my name only, that I can put money in, that no one can ever close without my permission, that no one can ever access that money without my permission. I can take a step like making sure that you have a credit card in your name only. No one else can charge on that card no one can close that card. That is going to be your safeguard if you ever do need to leave or get divorced. So it's those kind of proactive things to secure money and credit for yourself that will be the best way to protect yourself, knowing that you can't control what goes on with that business. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, I always say to people, you know, be very intentional how you commingle money, but also make sure that you have your separate accounts, you have a separate bank account, you have a separate credit card. I think commingling credit is is a very slippery slope. So, and a lot of women don't ever have a credit card in their own individual name, and so they come into a divorce with a very with no credit, really, and so, and that's a problem. So, while you're married, you know you should, especially you know when you're starting out and you're starting to think about this you know, make sure that you set this up in a logical way so that you may need that money in your separate account to pay for your legal fees. So that's another thing, you know, while you're in the middle of the divorce proceeding, you need to pay the legal fees. Maybe ultimately they may get compensated for, but that's after the decision has been made. So in real time, you need to have cash flow, but it also does protect you in your day-to-day life. So I think that's a very sound advice indeed. So obviously, the division of assets is really affected by by knowledge and if it just tell us a little bit about like when you have found hidden money how it's changed the decree you know the ultimate settlement well i think about 
the typical divorce for someone who is maybe not a high earner, doesn't have a lot of assets. I always say, what would $10,000 do for you and your long-term outlook? If we found that there was ten dollars or $20,000 that was hidden, that could have a really big impact on you as an individual. So certainly that can be very important, even, even if it's not the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we're talking about. You mentioned earlier gray divorce and getting a proper settlement so that you're set up for retirement. But I'm going to back it up and say, even for those who are younger than their 50s, it can be important. I have a friend right now who's 40 who is going through a divorce. She's been married for 10 years. She was the primary caregiver for the children. She took her career back to very part-time while the children were young. And so she was not putting anything in a retirement account of her right. own. She was just not making paying a little into, bit of money. Not paying into Social Security. And she's now getting divorced, and she's the one who wanted the divorce. And so she feels guilty, and she says, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go after any of the retirement account that he has through his job. And I said, I've, I've got to advise you against that. You have just spent 10 years not saving for your own retirement. Oh, I have time to make it up. I'm 40. No, you don't. <laughs> no, it's, you it, don't. It's a get it, a calculator. It comes yeah. up so much faster on you than you imagine. Well, and she probably would be uh, maybe two hundred to four hundred thousand dollars ahead, you know, on the long term end of it, if she was saving during those ten years and experiencing right. the growth of the investment account. Right. So that's just complete nonsense. What she says. I mean, it's just very. It's not good math. Right. And I think that there is, you know. A lot. There are a lot of people who don't think that math all the way through. They don't realize that compounding. They don't realize how it can really impact them 20 or 30 years from now when they're going to retire. So she did not, did she in the end ask for the retirement savings or not? They're in the process right now. They're in the process. And so I, I, I believe she's going to be asking for part of it, but we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, look, I talk about this all the time. I recommend that everybody get a prenup. Yes, me too. Yeah. if I don't care if you have money or you don't. You're not a static human being and you are going to continue to grow. But I've also recommended that there be a formula in prenups. I know there, you know, my daughter just recently got married in New York City. She's thir- uh, She was 32 when she got married last year. And um, she's a corporate lawyer or she's a litigator at a big firm. But, you know, we put, and this can go for anybody who is working and it could apply to not only her or my son-in-law, whoever decides to step out of the workforce part-time or full-time. But it's a formula that will take a percentage of your salary, what you would have been making, what you would have been contributing to your 401k and what you would have been contributing to social security. And it grosses it up over the time that you're off with an inflator. And that's at least a base settlement that you're going to get for all that invisible labor that you did for the family, because that is labor. And both people are stakeholders in the relationship and someone taking time out because you're not going to be able to jump back into your career where you're at and you will have lost years of career development. So I wouldn't be so quick, even if you are the one asking to have the divorce, to let money on the table, because down the line, it's going to be hard to make that up. And the same thing goes for, you know, the forensic accounting, um, you know, situation. If you think that there are things that have been hidden that could, you know, materially affect how you're going to live post-divorce, then either going to Tracy's website and getting the divorce money guide or 
talking to your lawyer and getting a forensic accountant, you know, obviously, how do lawyers play into this? I mean, should people be consulting their lawyers about forensic accounting? Do lawyers recommend it? How do lawyers fit into this equation? Usually lawyers are the ones who are contacting me, but when the client contacts me directly, I almost always say, let's get your lawyer on the phone. Let's talk together because I want to have the person who knows the law there so that if you say, I think this is happening, can I get this money back? The attorney is right there to be able to say, this is an issue that we can pursue and here's how that would go. Or in some cases, this isn't an issue because it's too old or because state law says this is not going to be a thing for us. So I really like having the attorneys actively involved because we need to know that if I find something, that there is recourse for it. Let's not spend ten dollars or $20,000 for me to investigate something that the attorney is going to turn on and say, we can't go after that, right? Right. So you have to have the team talking to each other. For sure. For sure. And, you know, I, I want people to remember, too, if you are in a position where you don't know what has happened with the money, maybe there was fraud, maybe there wasn't. Do you want to look into it? I don't know. If we look into it and what we find out is that everything checks out and there isn't any hidden money, I think there's value in that also. I want you to be able to sleep at night. And I want you to be able to know that if you're making an agreement in your divorce to settle, that you did it knowing that you had the information you needed in hand. Yeah. And honestly, I think sometimes it, it will be fraud and sometimes it will be just negligence and carelessness right. and the person doesn't know how to manage a company or manage the you know the money of the couple you know some not all people are adept at managing money some people are just bad at it and they make dumb mistakes and i think to your point i had a situation with a woman who was a client who went through the divorce then after the fact she thought something was awry Then she hired a forensic accountant. Then she sued her lawyers. By the end of it, she wasted so much money on all of these things. And it was protracted to the point where it never really came to fruition because the legal fees were then becoming so burdensome, you know? So it's really good if you feel confidence in your divorce decree and you know that you were fairly treated and there wasn't, you know, hidden assets that you could have had access to that would have helped you, you know, live in your post-divorce life. So it's it's not an intellectual exercise. This is a tangible, this has tangible consequences to your post-divorce life. And I, you know, I think that it's really important that people even know that this exists. This is something that can be done and that, you know, you just don't have to agree with everything that's put in front of you because often it's not, it's not accurate. So I guess, I want to kind of come to conclusion, and before I ask you how everyone can find you and so on and so forth, I would like to ask you, A, you know, what advice do you give to women about staying on top of this? And I would like you to elaborate a little bit about how it's actually not bad to try to figure out what the heck's going on with your money when you're commingled or you're living with somebody else. Just give me some of your thoughts about, you've been doing this for 25 years, you've seen a lot of things, you know, something that that really is compelling for women to understand that this isn't just an intellectual thing, but this is this is really could be a game changer in how they, they spend the rest of their lives after a divorce. Sometimes women feel sneaky if they are trying to 
get documents, get tax returns, get account statements and things like that, maybe without talking to their husbands. And there's nothing sneaky about it. You have a right to that information. And it's sometimes really in your best interest to do this quietly and just gather the information. You know, you mentioned a lot going back to retirement and how this can affect you for the long haul. Certainly, I'm always looking at it in that regard as well, because I've seen the effects on women. And you don't have to wait around for your husband to give you information. You can empower yourself to get information. And if it means, you know, I can't get into online banking, I've never been involved before, but I know my name is on this joint checking account, walk into the bank branch with your identification with you and tell them, I'd like to see this account. I need some statements. You can get them. So I really want you to empower yourself to get information, to not wait around for your husband to give you information. And then when you're in the divorce process, if you're being pressured to enter into a settlement, when you don't feel like you have the information you need, when you feel like, well, he hasn't disclosed everything. Well, we've been waiting for these statements and he won't give them to us. Don't be pressured. Tell the other side, I am happy to make a swift decision in this divorce once I have all the information and stand your ground. That's very good advice because people are going to be dragging their feet often in sending these documents. The whole point of doing that is to wear you down and get you to give up. So don't give up and don't give in because that tactic could cost you a fair amount of money down the road. And after the fact, you will really regret doing that. And the other thing I want to say is there are two equal stakeholders in a relationship. And whether you're a stay-at-home person or a working person in the relationship, you both are equal stakeholders. So hopefully you had a discussion about the staying at home and the caregiving and the invisible labor. And everyone agreed that that was going to be your role, but that means you're still an equal stakeholder. Just because, you know, someone is working and the other person is at home doesn't give the person who's working, you know, power of veto and just, you know, ruling the roost. That is an old-fashioned, antiquated idea. And the person who is a stay-at-home person gets penalized for making the family, you know, trying to take care of the family and do all the other stuff so the other person gets to have their career flourish. So don't be so hesitant to dig into information if you haven't been privy to it, if you think it's going to help you, because it probably will help you. So Tracy, where can the audience find you? Where can they find your resources? Tell us all. So easy. They can find me at my website, fraudcoach.com, because I like to say I'm your fraud coach during your divorce. And on that site, I've set up a page for your listeners. So they're going to go to fraudcoach.com slash feminist. And on that page, they're going to see the things that we've talked about today. My book, Find Me the Money, Take Control, Uncover the Truth, and Win the Money You Deserve in Your Divorce, they'll see the divorce money guide. They're also going to see a red flag quiz there. So if you were wondering about the red flags of fraud and should I be worried about what I've seen, you can take this three or four minute quiz and get an answer as to how concerning it is. Wow, that's awesome. So you can literally go to her website and you can take a quiz. And if you have some kind of little inkling deep in your gut that something is awry, you can take a, a quiz that will give you some guidance about what that's about. And I would say, you know, that's worth five minutes of your time to do that because it could be a game changer. So check out the book, Find Me the Money, 
It is on Amazon. We will have it in the show notes. And you can also watch this on YouTube. So if you want to see our smiling faces, please check us out on YouTube. And also, you know, go to Tracy's website because there's a lot of good resources on there. And if you're in a situation where you think you may need some forensic advice, the Divorce Money Guide can be an alternative to hiring a forensic accountant. So that's a a much uh, cheaper and more economical way of getting to the bottom of things. Obviously, if things are very complicated, you may have to hire a forensic accountant. But again, collaborate with your lawyer and find out what your lawyer thinks. As we've said before in the different podcasts I've had previously, make sure you have a good team of people on your divorce team. You know, a divorce lawyer, a forensic accountant if you need one, maybe a certified divorce financial analyst. And I always say, make sure you have a therapist if you can, because, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. So it's nice to have someone to talk to about all of this stuff. So Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a very important topic and I am just intrigued by the stories that you told me about, you know, figuring out how people hide money in their companies. I just love that. I I just, I think I should have been a detective in my next life. I'll be a detective because it's kind of like you're a detective. I sure am. And it was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's my pleasure. So guys, check everything out um, having to do with Tracy Conan because she is doing something very important and it's not to be um, disregarded because honestly, some of the advice that was given today could literally change the outcome of your divorce and how you live in the future. So on that note, I'm going to wrap it up until next time. Thank you for joining us and I wish you all well. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.